Yeah, if you, if you got your Bibles, won't you open them up to Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37. You know that scripture. And the title of the message this morning that I want to share with you is What Every Christian Needs to Know About Israel. What Every Christian Needs to Know About Israel. And if you were alive 75 years ago, on the 14th of May, 1948, you would have woken up to the news, the state of Israel is born. And uh, for us, we know that was the rebirth of the nation Israel, an absolute miracle Because for 2,000 years, Israel and the Jews were refugees. They were dispersed all over the world. And uh, some of you that know a bit of history, you know of the the Babylonians that had come against them and uh, destroyed their nation. You know King Nebuchadnezzar. You know the Romans under Caesar. Um, I I can't think of any nation that had it harder than Israel. And for all that, coming into the 20th century, Nazism and the Holocaust, and so just three years after the close of World War II, Israel finds a homeland. And they're back. And if you had gone to bed that night on the 14th of May, you would have woken up the next day for this news. 15th of Israel, the Arab world declares war. Tel Aviv is bombed. And uh, five Arab nations went to war in that day against Israel. And that war lasted for a year. That included Egypt, Jordan, Iraq, I believe, and, and two or three other nations. And it was all out war as they were intent on destroying the Jews. And for us today, for all of us, as we've been watching the news and we've been seeing what has been going on with Hamas and that region of the Gaza, and uh, for all of us got some of us a little bit of background, others with next to no background, and we go, how do we make sense of this? Um, and, and that's really what I want to share with you. And to put things into perspective, just in the Middle Eastern world, if you were to think of all those other big nations that make up the Middle East, and there you've got this little potato chip called Israel with 7 million people. And in in fact, you could compare in size to the Kruger National Park. That's, That's how big it is. And a people group that make up 0.2% of the world population. So insignificant, and yet day after day after day, our TVs are focused and our news is focused on Israel. That's interesting. And so, here is this nation that's surrounded by the enemies, that's got beat up and beat up and beat up again, and they're still around. That is a miracle. And the fact that they survived that onslaught by the Arab nations is a miracle. And uh, in fact, if 
I was to give you just one reason to believe in miracles, it would be Israel. The fact that today they exist. I don't know if any of you have met a Babylonian recently, or a Philistine, Persian. Anyone ever met a Jew? It's remarkable, isn't it? And so um, this morning, I want to, as we go into the scripture, I want to share and just really deal with three questions. And the one is, why is this nation Israel experiencing so much hardship? Why is there such intense sufferings for so many centuries? You know, are they, are they God's people? Surely God's people shouldn't have to endure all this kind of thing. Maybe they're not God's people. Were they God's people? Uh, so we're going to deal with that. And then secondly, does Israel have a future? What is the future of this nation? And the third and a very important question is, what relationship should we as the church have with Israel? Now that's an important one. Um, and so we need to ponder these things. So here's Ezekiel. He's a prophet, and he was alive in the time of Daniel. And um, I, I just, a few weeks ago, finished reading through the book and the prophecies of Ezekiel. And I need to confess to you that half of what I read I didn't understand. But we have to realize that when Paul the Apostle is speaking of Israel, he speaks of it as a great mystery, something that's very difficult to wrap our minds around. So even this morning, if you don't get everything, it's okay. Um, I want to encourage you, three chapters of the Bible you must read, and that's Romans 9, 10, and 11, where Paul deals with the doctrines of Israel and what is the future of that nation. Um, but Ezekiel lived about 600 years before Jesus, and God gave him intense and amazing visions of God's glory. And he sees, and, and two very important visions that he sees. The one is he sees Israel in their sin and Israel in their defilement. And so for so many years and decades, Israel had walked away from the purposes and the plans of God. And so they'd gone down the road and the path of sin. And maybe there's someone here and you have gone on the road away from the Lord and away from his glory and you're going to see just the state of Israel, even as it is today, is really what they're reaping is just years and years of unbelief and sin and hardship. And so Israel, at the time, they were, they were dispersed because Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians had come against um, Israel, Jerusalem. And so there was Ezekiel, not living in Israel, but in Babylon. And so these visions that he's having is in Babylon, where Israel is dispersed, and you can just imagine him and uh, the hardship of this time, and yeah, they are captives. Can you imagine South Africa being taken captive into another nation? And so this is how they were, and so he is prophesying, and he sees in two visions, one, he sees the glory of God leaving Jerusalem. And he sees God's glory coming out of the temple, down 
through the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives and leaving. And a time period passes and then he begins to see these visions with his hope. And then he sees this vision of God's glory coming back and resting again upon Israel. And so as we go into this valley, I want you to look carefully and, and uh, just see how this pertains to Israel. I'll, I'll read through the portion. It's from verse 1 to 14, this valley of dry bones. And it says, Ezekiel speaking, the hand of the Lord was upon me. And he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and he set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel's not sure, and he answered, and he said, O Lord God, you know. And then he, the Lord, said to me, Prophesy of these bones, and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and I will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And so I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. And then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. And so I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and they stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves of my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel and you shall know that I'm the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. And then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken it, and I will do it, declares the Lord. What a powerful vision for a man who is there in Babylon with his defeated people, hopeless, dark, in despair, and God says, those bones are going to live. I'm going to return these people. I'm going to restore them. 
And folk, there are some of you here today who in your life, you need to see God coming through in restoration. And if you cannot believe it in Israel, you won't have faith for your own life. And so you and I need to believe in a God that can restore nations, families, marriages, people, father-son relationships, because God is a God of restoration. And so many times in the scriptures, we have the words of God speaking, not only in Ezekiel, but in many other places, I will restore. We all know what the word restore means, but if you don't, it means to bring something back to its desired condition, to bring something back to its original state, to make it how it ought to be. God says, I make all things new. Do you realize that one day God is going to restore planet earth? That we are going to see one day a new heaven and a new earth, a restored heaven and earth where there is no sin and death and suffering. It's amazing. We serve a God of restoration. I don't know why we don't preach on this every single Sunday. Because it gives us hope. You see, God wants us to have hope. And if you just, all your inputs and all your media, if it's just the news, the news, the news, you're going to become pretty hopeless. Because they're going to tell you there's no future. There's no future for South Africa. There's no future for Israel. There's no future for the world. Everything's going down. Stocks are going down. Life is going down, education is going down, everything's going down, and we've got to look up. Because the Bible says when you see all these things, look up for your redemption draws near. Okay, these are exciting times that we are alive. Just think, 75 years ago, a prophecy was fulfilled. Okay, now who's older than 75? Anyone here? Okay, okay, well, okay, so testimony, testimony of this is amazing. So, the first thing I want you to look at in this passage is I want you to see the destructive effects of sin. When we allow and we open the door to sin in our lives, sin can have horrible consequences. Not only for, for us individually, but for our families, for our marriages, and for our nation. And when you look at any nation... The Bible says that sin is a reproach to any nation. So whenever a nation gives itself into idolatry, into immorality, into wickedness, that nation is on a projectile downwards. It's going down. And so we see it here. And that's in verse 1 and 2, if you're taking notes, where he says, as the Lord brought him into this valley. I wonder if this was the valley of the shadow of death. I wonder what David was foreseeing. But he goes into this valley. And uh, I wonder if the way it, he experienced it, I wonder if it was like a drone. Like, you know, the way drones come over and you get that, you, you just see it as it is. You get that God's eye view of this whole valley. And all he sees are these dead bones. And so there the Lord brought him, the Spirit of the Lord set me in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And so he's surveying the scene. And verse 2, he led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. There is such a thing as 
a, a dryness that can come over a Christian when we are not walking in the Spirit. When we take our eyes off Jesus, when we pull ourselves out of fellowship, when we tolerate sin in our lives, where there's a lack of daily repentance of sin, that we find a, a dryness, a dehydration. Have you ever experienced in your life spiritual dehydration? Where the Word and God's presence and worship, everything is just dry, dry, dry. And there may be some of you here and even... In, in a worship service where you just feel like, oh, I'm just singing the song, I'm just saying the words, but I'm feeling nothing. And um, that can happen, even to worship leaders. And have you ever been, and you're just reading your Bible, and it's just dry, nothing's speaking to you, nothing's ministering to you, you pray, you struggle to concentrate, and it's just barren and dry. Now, I'm not saying this can be all the time, but some of the time it can just be where there's a lack of repentance and where sin is beginning to pile up. And sin will always do three things to you. It will always wipe you out, wear you out, and dry you out. Sin will always do that. If you want to see that in an individual life, look at Samson. You see, here was Israel and they found themselves in the bottom of a dark valley somewhere. A graveyard. And you see, the one thing I've found about sin from my own life experience has been sin will always take me where I don't want to be. Sin will always put me in a place where I don't want to be. And for Samson, that place where he didn't want to be was there in the mill with his eyes cut out, grinding wheat for the Philistines, serving and doing the will of the enemy. And you see, that is what Satan wants to do in every Christian life, every person's life, is he ultimately wants to bring you under dominion. He wants to rule over you. He wants to put you in chains. He wants to get you grinding and doing menial tasks and missing the glory of God. And we've got to say, no, devil. I'm not going to do that. And so for me... My way of standing against the plans and purposes of Satan, because just the same way that God has a plan and a purpose for every single one of you, the devil does too. The devil had a plan for Satan. And so for me, I have renounced the rule of Satan over my life. I've renounced that and I said, no devil. And so the best thing that any other fellow believer can do for me is point out some sin in my life, like going through a red traffic light. And, and you see, because as I am in a state of repentance and confession, as people are coming to me and saying, hey, I see this in your life, as, as I am able to do that, it really kind of just kind of makes Satan fizzle away because he loses his power. Because wherever I can allow sin in my heart and in my life, that gives Satan a bit of a foothold. And so the best thing that you and I can do is repent of sin daily. Identify sin, repent of it daily. Amen? And so, here was, you know, and I just want to kind of maybe put this out to somebody, to some, just don't flirt with sin. Don't mess around with sin. It will take you somewhere where you don't want to be. And um, I, I remember when I was just a young boy, I, I, I went about 11 years old, 
I, I was, we used to belong to some Baptist church at that point, and um, I had to memorize a scripture and share it in front of the church. And it's funny, because that scripture I've never forgotten. It was Psalm 32. And I don't know why I was given that scripture, but it was, I still remember, when I kept silent, day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. And he said, this, he, he speaks, David's speaking this drought that took place inside of him. And he said, and then I confessed my sin and you forgave me. And uh, he says, for this cause, everyone who is godly will pray to you in a time when you may be found. And so for us, we've got to realize that what we see here in this valley of dry bones could well be one of us. And so we've got to, we've got to walk away from this. Secondly, and this is important as we learn how we should relate to Israel, is God told Ezekiel, prophesy. He didn't say curse. God said, prophesy to Israel. Speak the words of life to Israel, not curse them. You see, there are a lot of people today, even Christians, I dare say, that are cursing Israel. They're speaking out against Israel. And um, as, as we think about this, we've got to realize that Israel is not a has-been. Israel is not the divorced wife of the Lord. And the church is not the new wife. Because I think for Christians, and Paul deals with that in Romans 11, and he says, and this is called replacement theology, and it's something that came into the church, and some Christians believe it, that we the Gentile church have replaced because because Israel was unfaithful to God, so God discarded them, divorced them, and he's got a new bride, and that bride is the church. And it just doesn't fit with the scriptures. Because in Romans 11, Paul says, has God cast away his people? And he goes, by no means. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. And, and you see, God's still got a plan for Israel the nation of Israel. And for us, we've got to go, how do we relate to this nation? How do we relate to these people? I don't think we should be getting involved in their wars. Firstly, let me just state that out clear. Um, some Christians are sending you know, money to the Israeli Defense Force. I, that's not my thing. I, I don't propose that. And some Christians, I think when... Um, and, and there are those kind of teachings that say, hey, we should be getting into all the feasts and the Shabbats and the, you know, buy yourself a ram's horn and start, you know, doing all the, the, the diets and all that. I don't go for that. But what I do see in the scripture is that God loves Israel. Israel is called the apple of God's eye. He said when he took them out of Egypt, he said, I've made you a special treasure to me above all the peoples of the earth. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't love you and doesn't love me because we're not Jews. Of course he does. But do you know among the 12 disciples, Jesus said, and he loved them all, but there was one that he said, that's the disciple I love, the Apostle John. And so the Apostle John's got the name of the disciple whom Jesus loved. I didn't mean he didn't love Peter. No, he did love Peter. He did love all the others, but there was a special affection 
towards John. When Jesus was on the cross and he sees John and he says to Mary, mother your son, son your mother. And from that moment, John took Mary in and he looked after her. See, there was a special bond there. And God has a special bond and future for the nation of Israel. You know, um, when you trace and you look at the Nazi rule and Adolf Hitler, and do you realize that there were a lot of theologians that were kind of supporting him? Churches? And the crazy thing is that a lot of those ideas, the anti-Semitism, anti, uh, anti-Jews and anti-Israel, that we see in the 1900s started, and can, you can trace it all the way back to Martin Luther. And Martin Luther is one of the heroes of Christian history. Martin Luther is someone who brought the church out of Catholicism and, and uh, started the Protestant church which we are. But, you know, he was, when it came to the Jews, he wrote a book called The Jews and Their Lies. He advocated that and called the Jews stupid fools. And he said, you must burn down their synagogues and we must, uh, you, you know, just move them out and you can't trust a Jew. And, I mean, there was this venom there. And, of course, many followed in that. And that's not God's will. And uh, we've got to be aware of prejudice because um, we, we miss the person. When we write off the people we, as, as, as a people group and we miss the, the amazing people that are there. And there are Jews. Paul said, I am also a Jew. And of course, I'm Messiah, Jesus, the King of the Jews. We can miss a lot. Uh, you know, when, when I was growing up, uh, and true story, I, I um, surfer, love to surf, and um, I was I was kind of surfing one day, and this um, paddle skier. Do you guys know what a wave ski paddle skier is? Okay, those guys that would sit on there had these thick boards with a kind of safety belt on, and and um, the guy lost control, and he um, he literally rode over me, destroyed me and my board, and. Still got a scar on my leg from that. But I started hating paddle skiers. Like from young, 14 years old. I just like, man, those guys are the scum of the... And I discovered other surfers hated them too. And so whenever we'd see a paddle skier coming out in the surf, we'd all go, oh, let's go surf somewhere else. And that continued. And we used to call them derogatory names like goat border and... You know, and, and farm, and we, like, you'd see them come paddling up, and you go, oh, where's, the, where's the six pack? You know, because they'd have this little seaty kind of thing like that, and, and it was weird. And, you know, I, I wasn't walking with the Lord, so, you know, I was kind of bitter towards all these paddle skiers. And when I finished high school, I'm, I'm kind of sitting on the, on the beach one day, and a guy comes to me, and he's like, hey, would you like a job? And uh, he looked like a surfer, and I'm like, yeah, what, what you got in mind? And he, he's like, I, I own a boat. I've got a boat, a crayfishing business, and um, you want to join me? And it was, seemed like a cool guy, and I said, yeah, okay, let's go out once, and I did. And, and so um, he gave me a job, and uh, he organized me a house, like a beachfront house, like just super cool guy. And I discovered a few days later that he was a paddle skier. And... 
and, and Pete was his name. And Pete was actually the world champion paddle skier. But he just took me in. Like somebody connected with me and he gave me a house like um, next to, uh, above his house. And he was pretty decent to me for the most part. And took me to all these secret surf spots and everything. And well, that was that. And I, I moved on. And then afterwards I joined the Navy. And I was in the Eastern Cape in the Navy, and I had my surfboard, but I had no wheels. I didn't have a car, and so I was like, wow, I'd love to get to surf. So I meet this guy, and he's like, hey, you surfing? And I'm, yeah, and he's like, hey, I can, I can take you. I go out surfing early in the morning. You can, you can join me. So I'm like, sure, what time? And uh, next morning, I'm up early and get to his car, and there's a paddle ski on the car, and I'm like, love, not again. And um, so, so, like, yeah, God's dealing with my heart there. And uh, so we became good friends, paddle skier. And, you know, you know, you know, this was like having to bury my shame because, like, walking out on the beach to go paddle out with a paddle skier next to you, and you're like. <laughs> and then, to better it, fast forward, many years later in Cape Town, and I'm out in the surf, and I see a paddle skier coming out of this, and I go, oh, not again. And I watch this paddle skier, and he gets a wave, and this guy rips. And I'm chatting with some guys in the lineup, surfers, and, and they go like, yes, that guy's quite good, hey? And I go, yes, you know yes. His name's Andrew Selly. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, here we go. And so not all paddle skiers were bad people. But, you see, yeah, but Andrew, praise the Lord, he started surfing, so he's put his paddle skier away, so it's a revival. But, but, you know, just all that to say, there, there, there are times where we can have a, a negative prejudice. And, you know, the reason why I believe there are not more Jews sitting in our churches are because of the Christian attitude towards Jews. Because we think we are the new wife, and that's the old wife. It's finished and glow. And it's certainly not true. And so, um, Jews are getting saved, even today. There's a pastor that um, I was friends with, and I, I was asking, he was, he was a, had, you know, full, full, full Jew. And uh, I'd asked him, I'd say, like, so how did you get saved? And he was sharing his testimony with me, and he said, um, you know, at, at the time he was a um, very successful estate agent and making loads of money, and he was driving in his convertible, and, um, you know, he was into that kind of lifestyle, young, lots of money, girls, drinking, partying, all that, and he's driving in his convertible to go look at a property, and as he's driving by, someone on the side of the road shouts at him and says, you need Jesus. And he never forgot those three words. They stayed with him. When he lay in bed at night, it was the words, you need Jesus. You need Jesus. And it was interesting because it wasn't the words, you need judgment. It was the words, you need Jesus. They prophesied to the bones. Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. 
And you see, if we don't prophesy to dry bones, dry bones won't come to life. We have to prophesy. We have to speak the words of God to them. And so um, beware of criticism, indifference, intolerance, all those kind of things that we know wouldn't be right for the Lord. The good Samaritan was the one who got down where that Jew laid and ministered to him. We must love all people, not just Jews, but all people. And so um, realize that. And then third and last, and, and this is important to see in this parable of the dry bones, is that God works in stages. God doesn't do everything at once. Um, in, in fact, if you look at yourself, are you the complete picture? You know, could we look at you and just go, this is what a Christian should be. You might say, I'm still on the way. God works in stages. And the stages that God works in, if you look in um, three stages here in this passage, the first is that God regathers. He regathers. Secondly, he revives. And thirdly, he restores. And so the fact that Israel, that there is a nation of Israel, and that there are Jews living in Israel is not the full picture. Because if you go to Israel, you'll discover very quickly that they don't love God, and they certainly don't love Jesus. And so even these passages are yet to be fulfilled. And so we've got to move out the way and let the Lord do what He wants to do. And for Israel, this means a lot of hidings, a lot of discipline, because God disciplines those He loves. And we've got to realize that all these events that we see taking place is God calling the nation back to repentance. And that's what God does in our lives too. But there are stages here. So the first stage, like we see God bringing the nation back. There is a stage that we read of. And remember when after Jesus, he was about to ascend into heaven and the disciples asked him, this was the last question they asked him before he went up into heaven. What was that question? Lord, when will you restore Israel? And Jesus never looked at them and said, what are you guys talking about? Haven't you seen what already did? Haven't you seen what happened in history? No. He said, it is not for you to know the times and the seasons that God has set in place by his own authority but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. Where? Jerusalem. Where else? Judea. Where else? Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And so, for you and me, what do we realize? Is that God sets times by His own authority. And so, don't doubt what God is going to do in Israel. There is going to be a regathering greater than what we have already seen in 1948. They are going to be, um, when the Lord settles them, there's going to be a revival that is going to sweep through the nation of Israel. Where he says, I prophesied, verse 10, as he commanded, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and they stood on their feet, an exceeding great army. And then, from that, there's going to be the final restoration, and I want you to look at these verses and uh, this is the last scripture we'll look at. And I want you to see, because this is awesome. Verse 24. 
um, it tells and it speaks of this restoration sweeping through and revival, winds of revival coming through Israel. And uh, verse 23, actually let's look from there. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all their backslidings in which they have sinned. And I will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. And my servant David shall be king over them. What? David? David's dead. Okay? Think of the son of David. God's promise that Jesus would fulfill. And they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in all my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant. And I will set them in their land and I'll multiply them. And I will set my sanctuary in the midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people and then the nations will know that I'm the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. What an awesome, incredible passage and prophecy this is that is yet to be fulfilled. What? Can God do this? Can God dwell among them, rule over them, set his sanctuary there? And how, when, why, how will this happen? We get to Revelation 21, and it says, I saw the new Jerusalem descending out of heaven, having the glory of God. And it says, now the dwelling will be with God's dwelling, will be with man, and he will dwell with them. And guys, that includes you and me. We are going to be there with Israel. Now, this new Jerusalem, as it has 12 gates, three gates on the south, three gates on the north, three on the east, three on the west, it's a picture when you go back into the book of Exodus, how Israel had their camp. And the, in the center of the Israelite camp was the tabernacle, God's presence. Then there was three tribes on that side, three on that side, three on that side, three on that side. And God says in the New Jerusalem, there'll be three gates there, three gates. And each gate will bear the name of one of the children of Israel. God will do that. It's amazing. Guys, I'm sorry. This is just blowing my mind. You just got to have one of those moments of like, whoa. And Paul, when he gets to the end of that passage of Romans, and he said, oh, the wisdom and the knowledge, how unsearchable are his ways. These are past finding out. God is incredible. And you would have thought he would have just discarded them and left them somewhere in the wilderness to write. No, God says, I'm bringing those bones back. I'm going to put flesh on them, sinews on them. I'm going to reconnect them. They're going to come back together. And I'm going to pour my spirit in them. And they're going to glorify me. And Christ is going to come, son of David. And he's going to rule over them and shepherd them into eternity. And this is going to be God's doing. Because God, every time he says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. Guys, don't make the mistake of looking at Israel now and saying, that's it. There's so much more to come. I'll close with this. You know, outside my house, our backyard, I've got two beautiful bougainvilleas in pots. I love those red flowers and 
those colors. And, and uh, one of them, straight out my back door, it was, it was growing so big and I had to kind of trim it down. And as I was trimming it down, I noticed the pot was kind of leaning sideways. And so I kind of looked at that and I couldn't move the pot. And I realized that a taproot had pushed its way down through the hole in the pot, the drainage hole, and it had gone right down into the ground. And so I'm looking at this, and I'm like, this isn't good. And so, like, I just hack the thing off, the roots, and two days later, I wake up, and this thing is just like, <laughs> it's looking like it came from a funeral. And I'm like, oh, no, what have I done? And then... Uh, I think, okay, maybe I need to prune it some more. And I, probably it was the worst thing. I pruned it some more. And then, like, slowly the leaves start falling off. And the flowers, till it's just this ugly thing. And I'm just like, this goes on, like, you know, another month, another month. And it's looking dead and dead. And, and, and so I go and I clip one of the little branches. And I think, okay, maybe I can see. Maybe it's still green. And I clip it and it's... I look at it, that thing is dry, and I'm watering it and watering, and nothing has happened. And uh, go to Simon Davy. It's like, Simon, Simon, you, you're a plant whisperer. You're at Green Fingers. Like, what must I do? And he's like, just leave it. Just leave it. No, you're obviously upset it, and it's, you know, just, just leave it. And, and so, based on Simon's word, I left it. And couple of months, few months, five months passed, and I see the first of a little bud, and another green bud, and those dry, that were dry, something came back, and that was a restoration, and today, if you walk into my backyard, you will see a beautiful bougainvillea, doesn't remember anything of what its owner did to it, and how it destroyed it, and my friends, that's restoration. That is restoration. Those dry bones will come to life. Son of man, prophesy to those dry bones. And folk, we're going to close in prayer. And I just want to remind you of these things that we've learned today. Yes, Israel is under God's discipline. Yes, Israel does have a future. Christians, we've got to love, we've got to pray for those Jews, but God is dealing with them. Have faith. They will come to Jesus. God is going to do work there. And Paul says, and so all Israel will be saved. What a beautiful future. But let's bow our heads and we're going to pray and call on the Lord. And, and I, I just felt led to specifically, I want to pray, and I'm not, we don't have time to call everyone forward. But if you are in a valley of dry bones... If you are finding yourself in such a place that there were two important things that took place to bring those bones to what they needed to be. And the first was the word and the other was the spirit. Someone man prophesy, speak the word, speak the word. And then he says, come breath of life, breathe upon those slain that they may live. And maybe you've experienced some of just the hard or the heaviness of life, the discouragement, the downness, and the Lord says these bones will live. And I feel that's a word you need to hear today. 
whatever it is that just feels like dry, barren, whether it's your life, whether it's your marriage, whether it's your future, your family, someone in your family, is that those bones can live. And the Lord asks him, will those bones live? And he says, Lord, you know. God knows that he wants to breathe that life upon you. And so I just want to ask you to lift your hand up in your state of dryness and to say, Lord, these bones will live. They will live. I know they will live. Bring them to life, Lord. Jesus, breathe upon these dry bones, Lord. Breathe your life upon them. Holy Spirit, we pray as we prophesy. Come, Spirit, come, breath of life. Breathe upon these. Lord, we thank you for your promises to restore Israel. And that, Lord, you promised even in our lives to restore the years that the locust has eaten. Do this, we pray. And we ask it in the mighty, powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen, 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 Amen.